You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. So we have, uh, for those of you visiting with us, we're um, starting our uh, Nehemiah. We started last week, so we're in the book of Nehemiah. We'll be looking at the second chapter today, um, and... um, I'm not, we'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So Nehemiah chapter 2, you could begin to turn there. And it says this, And it, it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine, wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, uh, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the forest, of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the walls of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them... To me, because the good hand of God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned." The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. That's the word of the Lord. There was a young boy 
uh, sitting on a plane. And he was sitting next to a seminary professor. And this young boy was, was reading one of the, the papers he had taken home from Sunday school and was looking it over. And, and the seminary professor uh, recognized that. Um, and, and so um, uh, he, this seminary professor decided he wanted to kind of play with this little boy a little bit and, and kind of, uh, you know, have a good time. And, and he said, uh, son, if you will tell me one thing that God can do, I'll give you this shiny apple. And the young boy responded to the seminary professor. He says, Mr., if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. Uh, this young boy recognized the supremacy and the power and the sovereignty of God. Just as Nehemiah did. As Nehemiah, he has been pouring out his heart before God for four to five months, night and day. He recognizes that God is the God of the heavens and that, that King Artaxerxes is just a man. And he, and he prays recognizing who God is. And as Nehemiah prayed success for success and compassion as he would eventually have to speak to the king... Nehemiah, too, is an answer to that prayer. And Nehemiah, in prayer, recognizes that God's hand is upon him. He, he, he says that. He, he notes that several times, that, that God's hand was upon me. He recounts that to the Jews, that the good hand of God has been upon me. At the end of the chapter, when, when the uh, Sanballat and Tobiah are against him, he says the God of heaven will give us success. He recognizes that God is God's hand is upon him. Now, Nehemiah was just a regular guy who had a nine-to-five job as one of the king's servants. Certainly, he had a high and lofty position, but even as he continued to clock in and clock out as the cupbearer to the king, the Lord was stirring in Nehemiah's heart to lead God's people in restoring what was broken. As Nehemiah was praying, God was putting in Nehemiah's heart what God wanted him to do. And as Nehemiah was praying and seeking the Lord and submitting his broken and burdened heart to God, God began to give him a vision and a plan to do what God was leading him to do. And the main point I want us to see in this text, again, the, the main point of the book of Nehemiah is that God is restoring that which is broken. It's, it's not just a book about a broken wall, but it's a book about a broken people. That God is restoring his people to their Jerusalem, the city of God. And ultimately, it's because that God is not through with the people of God, because through Israel, we have to get to Jesus. And God is restoring what was broken, and ultimately, he does that through Christ. But as God restores his kingdom, he uses sinful and flawed people to accomplish his purpose, and God's hand is upon us. And we see, now I, I read in the book of Judges earlier, before our time of confession, when they were had rebelled against God and had begun to worship false gods, and it says that God's hand was against them. For evil. But yet here in the text right here, we see that when we are submitting our hearts and our desires to the plan of God, 
that God's hand is upon us for good and for his glory. This is what we call God's providence. I would, I would define God's providence as God's sovereignty in action. That God is supreme, that God is powerful, and we see God working in human situations right here. The first thing I want us to see is, as God's hand is upon his people, we must not allow the fear of man to prevent us from faithfulness to God's mission. As God's hand is upon his people, we must not allow the fear of man to prevent us from faithfulness to God's mission. Here again, when we get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, again, it says that it was the month of Nisan, and and before, we, we noticed last week that Nehemiah had been praying literally for four to five months, night and day, uh, for the people of Israel, for these broken down walls, praying that God give us success. I'm going to have to speak to my boss at some point, but God grants success as I do that. And Nehemiah had been praying this prayer for, for months. And he comes, and, and there he is doing his job. There in verse 1, it says that wine was before him. Wine was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer to the king, so it's his job to, to taste the wine and taste the food before the king would consume it to make sure it's not poisonous. Not a job I'd like to have, uh, but it was the job that Nehemiah had, and obviously this wine was safe, so he gives it to the king. And as he is there with the king in the king's palace, Nehemiah, who had been broken and burdened before God, praying to him, we see this interaction with the king. Again, he's doing his job. And then it says here in the text, it says that, that I had not been sad in his presence. And in reality, you would never want to be sad in the presence of a king. It was actually a, a, an offense to the king to even pretend to be sad in his presence. If you were sad, you had to put on your happy face. You know, I was, uh, I've, I've worked in, in, in restaurants and retail uh, in, in, in the past. And, you know, of course, we, every one of us has things going on in our lives, right? Well, every one of us has things that, that, that cause grief and sadness and as I would work with folks and employees would come in, obviously something was going on in their life. If they were going to be a frontline employee, basically have to tell them to check that at the door. And I would have to say, hey, look, if you can't make it, fake it. All right, put on your happy face. All right, you're before the king. You might be sad, but you, you got to put on your happy face. Now, you got to at least pretend to be happy. You're in the king's presence for crying out loud. And Nehemiah knew that. Nehemiah knew you, you couldn't. Uh, be sad before the king, and so, but he is. And so the king says to him in verse 2, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? He, he knows he's not sick. He knows that Nehemiah, he's taking this wine. He's taking a sip of this wine. He hasn't died from it. He knows it's safe. And so the king knows that the, this, the demeanor that Nehemiah portrays is sadness. This is nothing but sadness of heart. And notice what the text says there, that Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. He's afraid. Well, why is he afraid? Well, again, you, 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 didn't, you, you didn't portray sadness before the king. 
before another king, perhaps, if you acted if, if you acted like you were sad before the king, or if you were legitimately sad before the king, it could cost you your life. You could be killed for being sad in the king's presence. This is the king. You do not act this way before the king. At the same time, here he is drinking wine, and wine is often associated with gladness. In Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. In Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Even as Jesus celebrates a wedding feast, his first miracle was turn the water into wine. Wine was used in celebrations of gladness. Now, we don't exactly know what the king was celebrating here, but Nehemiah's sadness was no doubt potentially ruin, ruining the king's gladness here. Now, come on, Nehemiah, you're, you're, you're kind of ruining the party, bro. Come on, what's going on? And so... He's afraid. He's afraid of what the king might do to him. Would, would he be beheaded? Would he lose his job? What, what, would, what was going to happen? And he is afraid. Perhaps Nehemiah could say, Oh, oh king, live forever. You know, don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's no big deal. I, sh I shouldn't really be sad. You know, f forget all about it. Let's just, let's just let's keep the party going. Let's turn up, turn up the music and let's keep having a good time. He doesn't do that. He assumes the risk by sharing what's on his heart. He says, King, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire? He explains his sadness. This was a risky move because it was King Artaxerxes, his boss, who halted the work of rebuilding the temple and its walls in Ezra chapter 4. Now, now Nehemiah's language perhaps appealed to the king, as he says, the place of my father's tomb. Now, King Artaxerxes isn't concerned for the glory of God or anything like that, but he would understand this desire to pay homage to and respect your ancestors. And so perhaps Nehemiah is even being strategic in this. But we see here Nehemiah, he's, he's sad, he's stricken with fear. But he does not allow fear of the king to keep him from sharing what's on his mind and heart. Remember, for five months he has been praying day and night, acknowledging God as the God of the heavens and admitting that the king is just a mere man. Here he puts that faith to test. He says, look, I, yeah, I'm afraid, but man, God's the God of heaven. I'm not going to allow the fear of man to keep me from doing what the Lord is putting into my heart. Even in this text, we see that Nehemiah is already kind of forming a plan in his, in his mind that he presents to the king. And sure, he's afraid of the king, but he fears God more. Last week in Sunday school in Matthew chapter 10, we, 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 we saw... Uh, that Jesus said, do not fear the one who can just kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and soul 
in hell. Nehemiah, though afraid of what might happen to him, he fears God more than the king. And he shares his heart, which opens the door for the answer to these several months of praying. And God's hand is upon God's people. When we submit our hearts and wills to God and we, we seek to you know, fulfill the will of God and be a part of this plan of God to restore what has been broken, to bring redemption to this broken world through the gospel, God's hand will be upon us. God's hand will be upon us and we need not fear because God is working through us. Another passage we looked at, I believe last week, talked about how uh, these two birds, meaningless, seemingly insignificant birds that cost half a cent apiece, that these cheap, meaningless, seemingly insignificant birds would not fall to their death apart from the hand of God. And as we seek to submit to this will of God of restoring that which was broken, God's hand will be upon us and we need not fear there's a lot of things that Nehemiah could fear. He can fear the king. He can fear the response of the people. There's opposition that he experiences, as we'll look at here later on. But he fears God more than all of that. His fear of God leads him to trusting in him. We must not fear man as we seek to be faithful to his mission for us. The second thing that I want us to see is that as God's hand is upon his people, we must depend on him. In all circumstances. Now, Nehemiah takes this risk of sharing his heart. And he's sad because the place of his father's tombs are desolate. And then the king just opens up a question. This is like a golden opportunity right here. Well, Nehemiah, what do you want? What, what do you want me to do? Nehemiah, what would you request? Man, that's an open door right there. And how grateful, how great is that, that God has opened this door. Uh, Nehemiah, just ask me whatever you want. But even then, it says that I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, we've seen Nehemiah prayed for four to five months, day and night, pouring out his heart to God. What we see here this reference of I prayed to the God of heaven was in that moment, in that conversation with the king. He, he said a, a silent prayer because he's depending upon God for, for what he's about to say. He said, God, man, here's my opportunity, God. This is what I've been praying for for four to five months. God, be with me. I need you, God. I, 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 uh, give me the words to say. Give me, give me the boldness I need to request that which you want me to request. Here's the opportunity. He depends on God. He expresses a dependence upon God. As we saw last week, we must pray and we must pray persistent, persistently. But when God opens that door as an answer to our prayers, we must respond in obedience, but we must do so depending on Him. He prays depending upon God for what is to follow. When God's hand is upon us, we must depend on him. We must trust in him as we pursue a life of obedience to his mission. 
the third thing I want us to see, that as God's hand is upon his people, we must be bold in our obedience. I want us to look here specifically at what Nehemiah is about to request. In verse 5, he asked to, uh, Lord, if, if, if it pleases you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Seems like a simple enough request. But then essentially, the, in verse 6, he's like, oh, okay, Nehemiah, All right, how many days off of work do you need? That's really what it says there. King said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? When will you return? All right. You know, got, got his calendar out to pencil in Nehemiah's off days. All right, Nehemiah, how much, how much time off do you need for work? And it says he gave him a definite time there in uh, that, in verse 6. It pleased the king to send him. Now, I want you to understand what this definite time would have been. All right, it would have taken about three to four months just to get to Jerusalem. And obviously three to four months to get back. So we're looking at about eight months. It took 52 days to rebuild the wall. So we're looking about 10 months. And Nehemiah is literally asking the king for a year off of work. He's the cupbearer. He's the cupbearer to the king. He has a prominent position. This is not just a position that you can just go get some Joe Schmo off the street to fill in for you. And Nehemiah, man, that's, you're asking for a lot of off days. I don't know if you have that many. And I can give you a few weeks, but uh, a year? I don't know about that. No, he gives it to him. He, he gives him that year off of work. This is crazy because this is the cupbearer to the king. This is one of his most trusted people. In order to fill that position for a year, this is going to take someone that the king trusted as much as he trusted Nehemiah. But he asked for a year off of work, and the king grants that. But that's not the only thing he asked for. Continuing on in the text, uh, like, Nehemiah, bro, you just asked for a year off. Man, just quit there. Like, isn't that enough? But now he says, all right, Nehemiah, you know what I also need? I need some reference letters. I need some reference letters so I can give to these other people, these other kings, these other governors, so they know that I'm kind of sitting here on official business. Can, can, you, can you give that to me? Okay, I'll give you some reference letters. That's fine. You know, and we also see he gives him an army. And he gives him an army probably because he wants to protect Nehemiah because that's his right-hand guy. He doesn't stop there. Nehemiah's a bold dude. He's got some guts. Verse 8, he says, King, I need a year off from work. Give me some reference letters so I can travel unhindered. I can give these letters to the people. But you know what? Hey, I want you to finance this whole project. I want, to, I want, you to, I want a letter to, your, um, to Asaph, the keeper of your forest, that he'll give me any of the, the lumber that I need. Nehemiah, you just asked for a year off of work, and now you're asking for the king to give you free lumber? To go to this new job that you're going to take for a year? And it's, it's to rebuild the gates, but it's also to build his own house. God, I, I, Nehemiah, uh, king, I want you to give me 
a year off of work. I want you to give me reference letters, and I want you to give me free wood. I want you to finance the project so I also can build my house that I'm going to live in while I'm not working for you. Wow, that is bold. Anybody ever a- asked your boss for something like that before? Never gone? No, you wouldn't dare do that. You're afraid to ask for vacation. Well, Nehemiah is bold. And the king grants it. Dear believers, we must be bold in our obedience. If we believe that God is supreme and sovereign, may we ask and attempt great things for God. William Carey, who's known as the father of modern missions, says, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. We need to be bold in our obedience. Nehemiah had boldness here. Nehemiah knows what he needs. He asks for it and he gets it. This is boldness, and we must be bold in our obedience to God. We don't need to be passive or shy. Well, king, if you could just give me a little bit of time and, you know, a little bit of wood. No, give me all of it. Be bold in your obedience to God. And the reason that Nehemiah could be bold in this obedience leads to our fourth point is God's hand is upon his people. We must recognize God's providence in our lives. This is what it says here at the end of verse 8. This king granted all of his requests. The king granted these bold, audacious requests. Why? Because the good hand of God was upon me. It's not because I just had a tight relationship with the king or or that we were buddy-buddy or that the king really liked Nehemiah, but God's hand was upon him. The king granted him permission because that is, it's only because God's hand was upon, upon Nehemiah that God had already gone before him. Nehemiah understood the truth behind Psalm 21.1 where it says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. He understands that it's God's hand that changed the king's heart. In John 19, in a conversation with Pilate, when Pilate had Jesus, as Jesus was about to be crucified, Jesus is not really saying much, and Pilate's getting a little frustrated with Jesus. And he says, don't, don't you realize, I, I've got the authority to release you or, or, or to condemn you. And he hadn't found anything wrong with Jesus, so he just needed Jesus to say something. But what Jesus says is, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. He said, Pilate, you, you, you can't do anything apart from God. You are someone that, that, that God in his sovereignty and his providence turns your heart wherever he desires. And God, in his sovereignty and providence, works through men. He changes people's hearts like King Artaxerxes here. And it is the good hand of God's providence on the life of Nehemiah. And that's what he sees as the reason for his success. 
Nehemiah has been praying and the king's answer and granting Nehemiah's desires, Nehemiah can clearly recognize this conversation. That's the hand of God. Dear church, if you and I are going to have success in ministry, if First Southern Baptist Church Wickenburg is going to have success in reaching people for Christ, it's not because we were winsome enough or had a flawless gospel presentation or set up the perfect event. It's because of God's providence on our lives that his good hand will be upon us. We can take part in God's mission to restore what was broken because God is the God of the heavens and if we are submitting our will to his, as Nehemiah did, his good hand will be upon us. As God's hand, number five, as God's hand is upon his people, we must use wisdom as we live in obedience. As God's hand is upon his people, we must use wisdom as we live in obedience. We saw in this interaction with the king, that Nehemiah had already had a plan forming. All right, I, I, need, uh, I need a year off of work. I, I need some letters so that I can get through safely. And, and I know Judah doesn't really have the resources to rebuild the, the wall, so I need the king to finance the whole project. So that's what I'm going to ask for. So he's got this plan forming. But he still hadn't been to Jerusalem. He still hadn't seen the extent of the damage. He still didn't know personally exactly how bad the situation was. He had only heard a report from one of his brothers that it was desolate. So the next several verses, we see Nehemiah going out at night and inspecting the walls. He, he couldn't just go in and get to work. He, he had to use wisdom. If, if he were to to just go in immediately and start working and, and, and tell what his purpose was, he probably would have had immediate opposition. We already see opposition forming in this passage. He would have had people opposing him from the start. Perhaps he wouldn't have been able to motivate the people to work because they would have seen how bad the project actually was. But we see what Nehemiah does as he goes in secrecy of the night without telling anyone what God had put in his heart. He inspects the walls. He had never lived in Jerusalem. He'd never been in the city. He didn't really know the extent of the damage. And so essentially he's inspecting everything so he could formulate a plan to present to the people. He had to under, understand the extent of the brokenness around him. And inspecting the walls and not declaring why he's there, he's being very wise. Again, as I said, if he stated his purpose up front, he would have immediately attracted opposition to an already seemingly daunting task. He likely wouldn't have been able to motivate anyone to join him in that particular situation. But in keeping things under wraps and inspecting the walls, he's able to assess the situation, put a concrete plan together, and then get people on board. And God's hand was upon Nehemiah, but... We see here that God's providence in our lives doesn't cancel out personal responsibility in using wisdom. And God had providentially called Nehemiah. He had given Nehemiah the brain that he has. He, he is using human ingenuity to accomplish his purpose here. And Nehemiah inspects the walls. 
being wise and using wisdom as he seeks to live in obedience. We have to be wise as well. If we're going to have an impact on our community, then we're going to need to know, we're going to need not just to study the word and know the gospel, but we need to know the particular ways that sin and brokenness manifests itself right here in Wickenburg. And I know I've, I've heard from some folks how we used to go prayer walking. And going on these walks was a, was a purposeful intent to identify and pray over potential ministry opportunities. Uh, another way that we understand the task that's before us is to, to know what's important to people. What are they involved in? Where, where do they go? Where do people congregate? Ultimately, as we begin to discover these things, we can use wisdom to know how to reach lost people right here. As we get to know people who don't know the Lord, we'll begin to see their sin. We'll begin to see where brokenness exists in their own lives and be able to, with wisdom, minister to them with the gospel as God's hand is upon us. As Nehemiah began to seek the Lord and before he began the work, he first had to use wisdom to know what needed to be done. And as we seek the Lord, we too will gain a, a clear vision of how the Lord can use us to restore what is broken and further his kingdom right here in Wickenburg, Arizona. Number six, as God's hand is upon God's people, we must involve the whole body of Christ in God's mission to restore what is broken. After he inspects the walls here, again we see that in verses 11 down to 16. Then in verse 17, it says, it goes to the people. Now he's ready to, to get them together. He says, you see the, the situation we're in. You see how bad it is. I, I've now seen it. I can see how bad it is. You see how bad it is. Let us rebuild. And Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with, with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. You see, they had become a reproach because of their disobedience. As, as, as Nehemiah walks around and he sees the broken down walls, and again, as the people sees the broken down walls, they're reminded of their disobedience to God that led them into Babylonian captivity. That they are a re reproach to God because of their sin. He says, look, let us rebuild the wall. And it's not just so they can get a building project completed, but let us be the faithful people of God once again, living in holiness, living in obedience to God so that we will not be a reproach to God. Before Nehemiah can get them to focus on the future, he, he, he had to call them to remember their past. To remember why they were the reproach. And only then could he get them to see the need to rebuild. In order for Nehemiah to get people to work, he had to get people to open their eyes to see how bad things were. But when he did... When he did, 
begins to tell them, even in verse 18, he says, I told them how the hand of God had been favorable to me. And also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And he said, let us arise and build. So they put their hand to the good work. See, Nehemiah, he couldn't do this by himself. Maybe he could have, but it would have taken a really long time. But he needed the whole body. He needed everybody there. He needed the officials, the the common men. He needed everybody working. And we're going to see that in the next chapter where everybody's contributing to the work. And when everybody was working together. I want you to, 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 I I mentioned this earlier, but Nehemiah had been praying for four to five months. And I mentioned earlier, do you know how long it took them to complete the wall? 52 days. Less than two months. And they got this done. Because everybody was working together. Everybody was building. And they even experienced opposition during building. But they got it done in under two months. Because the entire group was doing their part. Have you heard the phrase, many hands make light work? Heard that a lot. That's what we see here. Many hands make light work. They were able to get this done in record time. And that's what we see in the body of Christ when every member is using their gifts to accomplish the mission that God has for us. We need the entire body of Christ. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 all talk about the fact that we're one body and many members with different giftings. Uh, Romans is kind of like Paul's systematic theology, but in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is applying this theology to a rather messy situation. And it seems as if in the Corinthian church, some members thought they didn't need others. He says, look, if if the eye cannot say to the hand, "I, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. As we submit our hearts and wills to God, we need the entire body of Christ using their gifts as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills the great commission as God uses his church to restore that which has been broken by sin. There's no place within the body of Christ to think that one set of gifting is superior to the other. Sure, there are more visible gifts like teaching and preaching and things like that, but... Every body is needed within the body of Christ. I want you to think about that. When you're not here, when you're not with the body of Christ, when you're not serving with the body of Christ, the church suffers. We need you and your gifting. Well, Pastor, I, I, I just, I don't know what, I, I don't really know what my gifts are. What are you passionate about? What are you good at? When we begin to answer those kinds of questions, then we can begin to answer how you're gifted and how the Lord may call you to serve. And we'll probably learn how you're not called to serve, right? I can't sing like anything. I'm glad Jordan turned my mic off earlier. Right, I'm not going to sing here on the platform. I'll play guitar. I'm not going to sing on the platform. That's not my gifting. All right? 
You may, you may want to do that, but you might be like me and can't sing. Well, that's not your gift. Oh, we can figure out what those gifts are. We can work with you to figure out where you can serve and how you can serve the body. But everybody is needed in the church. And the last thing I want us to, to mention, number seven, is God's hand is upon us. We must trust in God's faithfulness, even in the face of opposition. In chapter 2, verse 10, we begin to get a glimpse of opposition. We get introduced to this man named Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. When they heard about Nehemiah's trip, it says they, it was displeasing to them because, they, because someone had just come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now think about this for a brief moment. They don't know Nehemiah's plans. He hasn't told it to anybody. Now they ought to know something's up with Nehemiah because he's carrying probably donkey loads of lumber into Jerusalem. Something, somebody's got to begin to think, what's going on here? They don't know what his plans are. But it says they're upset just that someone would be concerned about the people of Israel. They, this is how terrible these people are, that, that they don't even want somebody coming and checking on the people. But in verse 18 and 19, we see these men again. As the people of Judah begin to work, they put their hands to the good work. They start rebuilding the temple but it says, when Samballot, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and now they've got somebody else on their team, Geshem, the Arab, they heard this. They mocked us and despised us, saying, what is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, geographically, all of these people are, are surrounding Jerusalem. Nehemiah and, and, and those rebuilding have opposition from all sides now. They're, they're encircled by opposition. Now, I want you to think about what Nehemiah could have done. Same ballot. They asked this question, are you, are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah could have said, are, are, are you joking? Man, look at these reference letters I got from the king. The king I'm, I'm here on official king business. He sent me. Also, look at the army that the king supplied me. If, if I'm rebelling against the king, do you think I'd have these reference letters in this army? And he could, have, he could have ended this conversation with that. Is that what he does? He doesn't mention those things at all. Well, why not? You, you had perfect ammunition to, to shut these guys up, but you didn't use it. Here's why. Look at the next verse. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you, you have no portion. You have no right or memorial in Jerusalem. Saying, look, I'm here, and we're going to build, and we're going to be faithful to this, because it's the God of heaven that's going to give us success. His hand is upon us. His hand is upon us, and therefore we are going to be faithful even in the face of this opposition. Dear church, as we seek to be obedient to what God calls us to, we will have opposition. The world hates Jesus, and it will hate us also. 
But even in the Great Commission, we're given a big task to make disciples of all nations and teach these disciples of all nations everything that God has commanded. And Jesus says, I am with you even to the end of the age. The good hand of God was on Nehemiah and it is on us as well. So may we be faithful as we allow God to use us to restore what is broken even as we face opposition and persecution. And as we see Nehemiah's answer to prayer in this text, and as we see Nehemiah's boldness before the king, it's very easy to look at Nehemiah and say, hey, let's be like Nehemiah. Let's be bold. Let's lead with fortitude and vision. But Nehemiah here is the supporting cast in the story. The reason Nehemiah is successful is not because he's got excellent leadership skills and he's Uh, great at motivating a team. The reason Nehemiah is successful is because God's providential hand is upon him. God will give him success. And again, even as we go through Nehemiah, we can easily turn this series of sermons, be like, be a Nehemiah, be like Nehemiah. And certainly Nehemiah is a good example to follow, a man of prayer, a man who trusts in the supremacy of God, a man keenly aware of God's providence in his life. But as we look at this passage and as we think about Nehemiah, it ought to point our eyes somewhere else. One commentator writes this. This kind of attitude may remind us of someone. Just as Nehemiah was in a high place at the right hand of the king, but came down to Jerusalem to help his people, so Jesus Christ having been eternally at the right hand of God the Father, came down into our circumstances to save us, enduring the shame of the cross. As we see Nehemiah leaving the palace and entering the brokenness of Jerusalem, and as he would experience opposition, the scriptures everywhere in the Bible point us to Jesus. Jesus left his throne. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus entered the brokenness of humanity, suffered persecution, and ultimately died on the cross to restore what was broken. And you and me and everyone in this room have been broken by sin. The book of Nehemiah is not so much for us to be like Nehemiah, but it's to look forward to the ultimate one who came to restore what was broken and for us to place our faith and hope in him. I want to say a few words. If you're an unbeliever today, you may be in a position right now where life's going great for you. You may have a good job, a gorgeous spouse, Your kids are well-behaved, extremely athletic, you've got a 401k, and you've even got oceanfront property in Arizona. That's great. I'm happy for you that you've received so many wonderful temporal blessings in this life. But even as life may seem to be going so good, you can be deceived in thinking that all is well and that you don't need anything else, but the reality is that you're broken by sin. Take away all of those things, and what do you have? You have nothing. All of us are sinners broken down by sin, and we need Jesus. If you're an unbeliever and life is going well for you, I'm going to submit that it's because God's hand has been upon you. And these temporal blessings of life, his kindness to you, it's been to lead you to repentance. And maybe you're here today, you're an unbeliever, and life's not going great for you. It's one trial after another. 
and you don't see how Jesus can help. You know you're broken, but everything you're experiencing is fundamentally because we live in a sinful world and every one of us has a sinful nature. While Jesus certainly didn't come to take away all of our struggles, he came to save us from our biggest problem, which is sin. We can come to him for redemption, and when we do, our worldview changes. The things that we once thought was God's punishment on us are the things that God is using to draw us to himself and to make us more like him. And to the believer, if you're trusting in Jesus today, submit to you that you're called to be part of something much bigger than yourself. Ever since Genesis 3, God has been orchestrating this plan to restore what was broken through the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, and that's Jesus Christ. But even though Jesus has came and died and rose again and ascended to heaven, this world is still broken by sin. It is still in need of redemption and restoration, and he has chosen you and me, flawed and imperfect people, to take part in his flawless and perfect plan. Even in the midst of the brokenness that we see, God's good hand is upon us. And he will give us success as we submit our wills to him and as we seek to be obedient to him, trusting in his good hand that is upon us. Let's pray.